So yeah, I don't think Mars is going to be a utopia at all. I think it's going to be a lab. I think it's going to be a place where there's going to be lots of noble experiments, some of which will succeed, some of which will fail. But the ones that succeed will show the way forward for everyone. If we discover new physics, all sorts of things are going to become possible that are currently thought to be impossible. And I think the place we're going to discover the new physics is in space, because there's no better lab than the universe. Welcome back, friends, to Selden Crisis. Today's guest is a truly amazing person I've had the pleasure of meeting several times over the last couple of decades. Dr. Robert Zubrin is the president of the Mars Society, an international organization advocating for the grand goal of sending humans to Mars to explore and settle the Red Planet as a second home for humanity. Dr. Zubrin holds degrees in math, aeronautics, and astronautics, a PhD in nuclear engineering, and in 1990, frustrated by NASA's lack of progress in sending people into deep space following the Apollo program, Zubrin, along with colleague David Baker at Martin Marietta, wrote a research paper on a new mission framework called Mars Direct. Dr. Zubrin later wrote a classic treatise called The Case for Mars, based on Mars Direct, and in 1996 founded the Mars Society. Since then, he's been crisscrossing the globe, inspiring humans from all over the world about the value of exploring Mars and beyond. I'm very happy to have him on the podcast today. Welcome, Robert. Thanks for inviting me. Cool. So as you know, um, I assume, this podcast is generally about uh, a science fiction author, uh, Isaac Asimov, and his most famous work, Foundation. So my... Um, my typical listeners are are into that kind of stuff, but we also veer off into related things like uh, the science of foundation and philosophy in foundation and things that don't have anything to do with foundation or Asimov on occasion. So um, I'm kind of curious, though, if you've read any Asimov or how familiar well, sure. you are with him. Of course. I, I read his robot stories. I read uh, the Foundation Trilogy and a variety of other things. Cool. Um, so, yeah, you have something in common with most of our listeners then. Sure. Um, so I first wanted to talk about how I came to know about you and, and uh, the Mars Society, because this was uh, a little interesting story. Uh, back in 1999, NASA had a mission to the south pole of Mars uh, called the, the Mars Polar Lander. And... Uh, as uh, that was approaching, I got my my you know latent interest in Mars since I was a kid uh, fired up, and and I just had to I got really excited about it. So I had a three year old son, and I took him down to the uh, the Tech Museum of Innovation in in San Jose, uh, and we went in in anticipating. Uh, we were just a little bit late for the arrival time, and we went in expecting to see telemetry or a bunch of people like watching for telemetry to come in. And when we went into this room in the Mars exhibit area, there were a bunch of people with very glum faces, uh, and you probably would know why. <laughs> uh, it, had, it had failed to call home, uh, and later it was determined that it never um, landed successfully. So uh, 
the the interesting thing is like I'm thinking, what do I do now? And I look at these people, and they 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 all looked so sad, and and uh, but they had this stack of books on a table, and it was the the Mars Society people there, uh, and one of them just handed me one of the books and said, "Here, just read this," and uh, it was the case for Mars, and so I, I read it, and uh, soon after that, I was going to Mars Society meetings in the Nor NorCal chapter, and uh, wasn't much long. After that, that I went to my first convention in at Stanford. Uh, actually, I, I'm embarrassed to say it was my last convention, uh, and uh, but I'd love to see more. And that's where I met you for the first time, I believe. And we've met a few times after that. So that's how I got you know, involved in it. And I would love it if you could just give a real uh, general, like overview of what. Mars Direct and the case for Mars is about? Okay. Well, let's start with Mars Direct. Um, 1989, I was a, a senior engineer at Martin Marietta Astronautics, a company that is now known as Lockheed Martin, um, doing preliminary design of interplanetary missions. And at that time, uh, President Bush I, um, in July, got up on the steps of the Air and Space Museum together with Armstrong and Aldrin and Collins, the Apollo 11 crew, and he said, look, this is the 20th anniversary of the Apollo moon landing. That's what America's all about. And uh, and therefore, I, as president, am committing us to go back to the moon and on to Mars and this time to stay. So it was great stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And so what NASA did was they commissioned a very large team uh, to – uh, come up with a plan for how to implement this. And this included a lot of NASA people. It also included contractors like us and Boeing and others who were tasked to do various pieces of analysis. So we knew what was going on. We did not agree with the plan, at least we did not. Uh, and uh, when it all came out, it, it, it took three months, this gigantic plan, which was known, therefore, as the 90-day report, and um, it was a plan to get to Mars in 30 years at a cost of $400 billion, and which at that time was considered a lot of money, um, a lot of money. And, uh, and it was very apparent to us, the engineers at Martin who had worked on this, that this plan uh, had no merit. It was not well conceived. And furthermore... The thing that really mattered to management was if this is where the matter was left, there wouldn't be a program, okay, because Congress just rejected this sticker shock. We're not spending $400 billion. And furthermore, Americans can't wait 30 years for anything, okay? So mm -hmm. it had to be faster. It had to be quicker. Or it wasn't going to happen at all. And we, uh, the engineers who had worked on this, went to management. We said, look, we can come up with a much better plan than this, something that could conceivably be funded. And the management uh, was uh, receptive. And this, this, by the way, is, is, is unusual. Uh, the wisdom in the aerospace company among managers is agreed with whatever NASA says, no matter how stupid it is, because the customer won't like it if you cross them. You are there to, you know, be the chorus that says, yeah, 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 okay? And uh, but 
they, they thought that the 90-day report was so off the wall that we had to diverge. And so they pulled together a team of 12 people drawn from the whole Martin company, which is quite large, and um, about 100,000. And I was one of the 12 uh, to come up with an alternative plan. And they were all pretty creative spirits within this group. And in consequence, we couldn't agree with each other. And in fact, we came up with three different plans. Uh, there's different subsets of this team. Came, each came up with their own plan. Uh, and once again, management rose to the occasion. Rather than try to reconcile these different ideas to come up with a company party line, they just said, look, um, well, let's float all three plans and see what happens. Uh, because which was smart because you couldn't reconcile uh, the ideas that were implicit in these three plans. So we floated all three in the spring of 1990, and it rapidly became clear that the Mars Direct plan, which was the plan that had been developed by myself and another engineer named David Baker, it's mentioned in the case for Mars, and mm -hmm. supported by uh, about three other people, uh, the the that this was um, the plan that had the greatest chance of, of overthrowing, uh, breaking the, the logjam here. It was the mm -hmm. most radical break with the thinking of the 90-day report, um, and but not because it involved some super jazzy advanced technology. On the contrary, in many ways, it was the most uh, conservative uh, uh, plan, far more conservative than the 90-day report, which involved constructing giant spaceships in Earth orbit with uh, fully loaded with all the propellant to go to Mars and back using advanced ion drive spaceships and all sorts of other unobtainium. Uh, rather, lots our, of stuff, our, lots of stuff that hadn't been developed yet. Or right, even, right. Yeah. Our plan was radical in its conservatism in that it was basically Apollo times two. It was two direct launches to Mars. Now, I mean, Apollo times two in terms of, of, of how it would be done. It would be done with two launches of a Saturn V class booster. The first to throw to Mars an Earth return vehicle with no one in it, but the equipment to make its return propellant out of the Martian atmosphere. And then the second launch to send the people in a habitat spacecraft. And because the return ride is waiting for them on Mars, they don't have to fly to Mars in a Battlestar Galactica spaceship. They fly to Mars in a tuna can habitat, landed on Mars, it's their house on Mars, and then they leave that on Mars when they fly back in the Earth return vehicle. And so each time you do this, you add another habitat in the base. So I can still remember, uh, it was March 1990, Baker and I were sent down to Marshall Space Flight Center to brief them on Mars Direct, and I was not expecting a positive reception at all. <laughs> uh the the because we were such a dramatic break from the whole party line, and but instead it was overwhelmingly positive, and precisely because Marshall was the most conservative center, they had heard all this stuff of the giant solar electric spaceships and the giant nuclear electric spaceships. All the aerospace companies had been there with their own Battlestar Galactica plans, um, and. That you know, they they just regarded that, that all as science fiction, and we come in with something that looked basically like twice as hard as Apollo, and they could relate because, by the way, this is 1989. You should excuse me, 1990 um, is 21 years after the first moon landing. There were a lot of people in that room who had participated in Apollo, 
Right. Okay. Uh, and um, th- that that generation, uh, at least the the middle and younger half of it, ha- had not yet retired. Uh, and so they went for it. And they even one of the managers took Baker and I into his office and coached us. He said, "Look, you're going to go to Johnson Space Center next week. This is how you got to present it. This is how you got to tell them because they got and the the and it immediately became we got a lot of support uh, from all over NASA and even from some of our competitors uh, for the same reason why our own management liked it because you know basically everybody wanted there to actually be a program and. Uh, a lot of people realized that the Battlestar Galactica thing wasn't going to work. I mean, yeah, what, you were, uh, you were describing something actually possible. <laughs> right. And yeah. technically possible and, and at least in principle, politically possible. Now, in fact, we were too late. The 90-day report did sink the Bush Space Exploration Initiative. Um, but the uh, a couple of years later, 1992, Mike Griffin became associate administrator for exploration. And I briefed him and he liked Mars Direct a lot. He had me go back to Johnson Space Center and he said, I want you to brief him again and I'm going to make sure they listen. So he did and they did. And so NASA then embraced these ideas, direct flight to Mars, no on-orbit assembly, no advanced propulsion, use of Martian resources starting on the very first mission, uh, uh, long duration stays on Mars starting on the very first mission, and uh, other uh, uh, principal features of Mars Direct. And they embraced it, and then they designed their own version, which I called Mars Semi-Direct, because it embraced these principles, but it was three ships instead of two ships, and it was a crew of six instead of a crew of four. They had more people, more equipment, heavier equipment. But nevertheless, the basic principles were there. And they costed out this expanded version of Mars Direct at $55 billion. These were the same people that had costed out the 90-day report at 400. Mm-hmm. And I tried to argue with them. I said, look, you don't need this. You don't need that. And uh, Carl Sagan, actually said, look, you know, Bob, look, it doesn't matter whether it's 50 billion instead of 30 billion. It matters that it's tens of billions, not hundreds of billions. <laughs> and and he was right. Um, and so there it was. And then what happened was, now we're getting to 1994, the 25th anniversary of the moon landing, Newsweek magazine finds out about this, that Johnson Space Center had come up with a plan that it was 55 billion, not 400 billion, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And they made it their cover story. And, um, and I got extensive play. They gave me credit as the source of the ideas. And the, uh, so a couple of weeks later, I'm sitting at my desk at Martin and my phone rings and it's a woman's voice. And she says, hi, I'm a literary agent. You know, you have a book here. And I said, really? And they said, have you ever written a book? I said, yeah, I wrote a book once. I couldn't get it published. And she said, what kind of book was it? I said, it was a spy novel. She says, were you ever a spy? I said, no. (laughs) Did you have a literary agent? No. Okay, well, you are an astronautical engineer, and I am a literary agent. And if you write this book, I will get it published. Cool. And so I wrote The Case for Mars, and she sold it to the Free Press, which is part of Simon & Schuster. And... uh, the whole first run sold out in uh, two weeks, 18,000 copies in two weeks. The thing was a runaway seller. Um, and, and by the way, here's a funny thing about that. 
Before the free press accepted the proposal for the book, it was rejected by 40 other publishers. And I wish I had saved the rejection letters because they're all so arrogant. Who would possibly be interested in a plan for how to get to Mars? Wow. So Simon and Schuster, there was an editor there named Mitch Horowitz who was into um, sort of exploration, adventure kind of books like climbing Mount Everest kind of books. And he saw this as something in that vein. And he, he said, I want to, I want to edit this, you know, this, I want to be the guy for this book. And so they did it and it was a runaway success. And, uh, it sold about 150,000 copies in the United States. It sold in about eight foreign languages. Uh, and I got 4,000 letters <laughs> from people all over the world. Some emails, but at that point, mostly actual stamped letters. Okay. Yeah. If you can imagine what 4,000 envelopes with stamps on them and things inside of them look like. And and they came from all kinds of people. They came from engineers at JPL and astronauts at JSC. They came from, you know, 12-year-old kids in Poland and firemen in Saskatoon and the widow of a guy who won the Congressional Medal of Honor in World War II for sinking a Japanese aircraft carrier and the the, the, the and the director of a, the, a major opera and bankers in Paris and Singapore. And, the, you know, and looked at this. It was this incredible array of people. And... I got together with Chris McKay and Carol Stoker, the people that were part of this informal network that I was also a part of called the Mars Underground. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they had been holding these Case for Mars conferences. And I said, look at this. If we could pull these people together, we'd have a force that could maybe make something happen. Because you see, the people, all these letters, they said all kinds of stuff you could imagine. But underneath whatever they were saying, there was one thing they were really saying, which was how do we make this happen? Mm-hmm. Okay. And so we called the founding convention of the Mars Society, which was um, in August 1998 in Boulder, and 700 people showed up. We sent an invitation to everybody who had sent me a letter. 700 of them showed up. And also the New York Times showed up, and the Washington Post, and the BBC, and several other major media. Uh, and we came out of that with an organization. And we decided we would do three things. One, general outreach, spread the vision. Second, um, political work to try to uh, expand the existing Mars programs uh, being done by the various governments. And the third being projects of our own, of which the first was the building of the Mars Arctic Research Station. Yep. Uh, I didn't realize when I first discovered the Mars Society that it was that young. It was only two or three years old at that point because that was 2000. Well, 99 when I first... It was one year old at, at yeah. that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for uh, all the um, the details on that because I hadn't heard how that all started and must have been really exciting um, to, to make that kind of breakthrough. Well, it certainly was something. And we, you know, we raised the money, we built the Arctic station and that was an adventure because, you know, we had to paradrop the materials on Devon Island and the paradrops failed and yeah, I remember the crater and some of them were destroyed and the paid construction crew deserted and we were left to build it ourselves with the help of the Inuit.
And you uh, I think Frank Schubert uh, was involved in, in that. Frank Schubert, absolutely. Frank yeah. Schubert was up there on sort of a lark. And, but when the pay uh, workers all deserted, you know, the Frank knew construction and he helped rally the team, uh, which was a mixture. I mean, if you can imagine, Mars Society members who were up there were like astrobiologists and Inuits, okay, Eskimos, if you will, um, and most of them teenagers. And to, to give an idea of the gap between the two parts of the construction team, okay, here you have all these astrobiologists and you know, Mars exploration, astronautical engineers up there. And then here's an Inuit. And I, I remember I was walking back to the tent camp from the construction site one night. And I had this horrible hacking cough because it had been freezing rain early in the season. And so this Inuit kid is walking next to me. And he says, um, you know, there's a good faith healer in Resolute Bay. And, um, and, and I said, well, I prefer regular doctors. And he said, um, you don't believe in faith healers? And I said, no. And he said, you can go to hell for not believing in faith healers. Mm -hmm. All right. So you can imagine, okay, yeah. you know, that that's not, I mean, that statement from him was a mixture of Christianity and pre-Christian shamanic beliefs. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's true, because hell isn't usually a, a part of shamanic beliefs, I don't think. Right. So there was some some uh, Christian ideas mixed there with the pre-Christian ideas. Uh, and so, but together we built the ham. <laughs> and, you know, when the power drops failed, this reporter for uh, Spacecom or one of these places, he contacted me and he said, so Dr. Zubrin, how would you compare the failure of your program with that of the Mars Polar Lander? Okay. <laughs> okay. And I nice. said, well, there's uh, a similarity in that we both had a crash landing, but there's a difference is that we have a human crew on the scene here and we are going to pull this off. Okay. Yep. And that was the point I made. I said, look, you know, on the Mars mission, the human crew is not going to be the weak link in the chain. It's going to be the strongest link in the chain. Right. Well, and then when did the uh, desert uh, Mars Desert Research Station get built? Well, um, after we succeeded in building the Arctic Station, we decided we would build a second station in the American desert. And um, we searched all over the place. And actually, we got a, a hint that led us to the current site from James Cameron, the movie maker, who mm -hmm. uh, was sympathetic to the Mars Society and who had scouted that place as a possible site, scouted that area as a possible site for a Mars movie he was considering. And mm. we went there and we scouted out, actually Frank Schubert and I uh, found the place where we could put our station. Now, and we had to raise money. Uh, now we got some of the money, okay? If the money came from some, some unusual places. Half of it came from trade unions, hmm. okay, uh, the sheet metal workers and the um, pipe fitters, unions. Uh, and the deal was we set this place up. We set up the MDRS at 
Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex during the summer of 2001. And we had it as an exhibit there. And we had a bunch of art um, depicting humans settling Mars, but it showed uh, a prominent role for construction workers in creating cities on Mars. The, the building trades were trying to reach out to young men to, to, to make their case that the trades were not part of the past, but part of the future. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that was the idea. And that's why they gave us some money. And the other part of the money came from Elon Musk. Uh, and, uh, I believe you were there, uh, for part of that process. Yeah. Um, well, so that, that came after the, um, the fundraiser in, um, Palo Alto. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, what happened was, uh, we were raising money for the desert station and we had a fundraiser in Silicon Valley. And, um, and we had it at the house of uh, Bill Clancy, who was a relatively well-off Mars Society member, had a nice house there. And so we had it at his house, and it was going to be $500 a plate dinner. Um, and I was a speaker, and I, Cameron was actually there as a speaker. Yep, he was uh, the, the main draw, we thought. Yeah. Okay. So we get this check in the mail for $5,000. Wow, why would someone send us $5,000 for a $500 a plate dinner? Who's it from? Elon Musk. Never heard of him. Well, <laughs> we did a little research, found out he was one of the uh, top guys at PayPal, which we had heard of because there were these people who were trying to pay their dues with PayPal instead of with checks or credit cards like normal people. And the, the so very irritating. But under the circumstances, I decided to put that grievance aside, and I had like a two-hour cup of coffee with Musk before the event, and then I made sure the right people were sitting next to him at the event, uh, like I think it was Cameron and maybe Carol Stoker, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, and anyway, so they you know, brought him along, and uh, after the event, he came over to my place here in Colorado. And he donated a hundred thousand, and also became the member of the board of the Mars Society for a while. Got um, it. Now that, and that explains a huge discrepancy in how I what I've been researching myself, because right after the event, I don't know if it was the next day or very soon after, uh, I got an email from Bill Clancy saying Grand Slam was the subject, and it, it was about the hundred thousand dollars. And, okay. I, and then I, when I looked at the, the account of it in uh, that first bio, um, I can't remember who wrote it, for uh, the Musk bio. Um, Ashley Vance, perhaps? Yes, Ashley Vance. And there was a, a, a line in there about how Musk had donated $5,000. So I was thinking, wait, where is this? Those don't match up. And, uh, but then, then when I, uh, was getting ready for, uh, appearing on that BBC doc, uh, last spring, I looked into my, um, my notes on it and I found that I didn't find the email itself, but I found what, that I had written it down in my summary that we'd gotten a hundred thousand from Musk. So now I understand how that. Yeah, came. actually 105. Yeah. Um, but the, um, but yeah. And so he's on our board for a while, and um, but then at a certain point, he contacts me and he says, "Look, you know, 
I'm not the kind of person that wants to be part of somebody else's deal. I got to have my own deal. Okay. And right now I've already made all the money I could possibly want. And it's interesting at that point, he was worth $180 million. Now he's worth a thousand times that, but, but still 180 mm-hmm. million was all the money he could imagine wanting. And uh, so this isn't about money for me anymore. I want to do something really important. And uh, he had decided uh, based on, um, well, his contact with the Mars Society and also the the book, The Case for Mars, which he had read, um, that that was one possible thing. uh, And the other was solar energy. That is, these were the two most important things that could possibly happen in our time period you know, make humanity multiplanetary or uh, defeat global warming with solar energy. Okay? Mm-hmm. And uh, I argued forcefully he should make Mars his thing because solar energy, you know, uh, the business plan for solar energy is obvious if someone can make it cheap enough. So that if anybody's got a way that they can make solar energy cheaper than fossil fuels, it will take off and the world will go solar. And if they cannot, it won't. And anybody who can go to Wall Street with a business plan, with a new technology or a new business model or something that offers promise along these lines can find an investor. Okay. On the other hand, humans to Mars, you know, you go to uh, Goldman Sachs or Solomon Brothers, one of these places, and you say, here's my business plan, humans to Mars. They say, um, get lost. Um, the, 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 you know, the, the business plan is not at all obvious and it will take somebody who could see past, you know, how, how do we get, you know, our money back in triple in five years, uh, to, to support that. Well, in the end, he decided to do both. Yeah. In Elon and, Musk and then he did right. the, uh, car company as well. Um, yeah electric car company. And it's quite interesting, you see, that of those three ventures, the two that were least credible from a business point of view, that is SpaceX and uh, Tesla, were the ones that were most successful. Mm-hmm. Whereas the solar energy, solar city, he, he hardly figures as a factor in that industry at all. Right. Um, and um, the... So... So he, 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 that's what he did. And uh, I, I certainly have uh, a variety of disagreements with Musk, including most recently concerning uh, Ukraine. Um, but uh, to give credit where it's due, okay, uh, he's not in it for the money. He really isn't. Right, right. Uh, he's in it to make history. Um, and in a way that's both his strongest and weakest, um, it's both his greatest strength and his greatest weakness is he's passionately driven to want eternal glory for doing great deeds. Um, that's why he's doing SpaceX. That's why he's doing Tesla. Okay. And that's also, in my view, how Putin manipulated him by telling him you can be the guy that stops nuclear war by proposing this peace plan where Ukraine gives up okay yeah um the the but in other words he appeals to his desire for grandeur um but 
but it's also his strength. Um, someone who was just interested in making money wouldn't have done either SpaceX or Tesla. Um, right. Okay. And it just as an aside, um, I, I was just, you know, I did a lot of, did some research into my part in that back in those, in that year uh, before, when we did the fundraiser. And mm -hmm. it was, it was interesting because uh, I actually met him after the fundraiser. I never even met him at the, at the event, but uh, he came to a chapter meeting and introduced himself and uh, we all introduced ourselves and he asked me what I did. And I said, I was a web developer. I had just started being a web developer and he asked me if I would, uh, if I could turn a, a PowerPoint presentation into a website. And the presentation was pretty out there. It was a, uh, a description of how he wanted to send rockets to Mars using uh, Russian ICBM uh, rockets. Uh, and he wanted to land a little greenhouse there. Mm -hmm. He had it all worked out. And and I did it for him. I did the little uh, presentation, and that was the last I ever heard from him. <laughs> but um, it was uh, – I, I remember the main thing I, I remember about him at the time, you know, jives completely with what you're saying, because he was obviously really determined to to do – to make it work, to get to, to Mars. And he was – what he conveyed to me was that what was driving him was the realization that it wasn't happening otherwise, that nothing was, that the great things don't happen unless people, you know, make a serious, a serious push to make it happen. And, you know, that, that he saw that as his role to make right. that push. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So anyway, we could talk about Musk for a while, yeah. But right, but, but getting but, sick of talking but, but about to, Musk. Not to talk about <laughs> Musk per se, but this is an example. Okay, Musk is doing what he's doing with respect to SpaceX because he has been he's motivated by an idea. He's motivated by a vision. Okay, and this is why you know Victor Hugo said nothing can stop an idea whose time has come. And that is true, provided that the idea has messengers that can recruit to its banner the forces necessary for its realization. And so I mentioned the Mars Society does three things, spread the vision, political work, and projects. The last two are quantifiable. The first is not, but it's probably our most effective role. Uh, because by spreading the vision, you get people with all kinds of talents, uh, in all walks of life, decide that they are going to do what they can to make it happen. And so, you know, Musk's accomplishments are his own entirely, okay, and that of his team, obviously, that he recruits, uh, many of whom also, by the way, have been recruited to this vision by us. Um, but nevertheless, they're the ones who are actually doing it. But nevertheless, by spreading the vision, we recruit to the vision the people who can make it happen. And there'll be people who are businessmen like Musk or engineers like some of the, his team at SpaceX who work their tails off because they're committed to this vision. Uh, and there'll be other people in various places in the political structure who will need to do their part when the paperwork comes across their desk. Um, you know, um, And hopefully we'll find enough of these people in enough places that it will happen. It is. It is. Yeah. 
Well, a lot's happened in the last 20 years, and a lot of it with like what's been happening with SpaceX. Um, and we're starting to see some progress towards making it possible to do a lot of things out there. So actually, I would love to go on and talk about, well, first I want to talk a little more about Mars, if, if I don't mind, if you don't mind. Um, there's um, been some really exciting space missions to Mars for the rovers, like soon after the events we were talking about was the uh, Spirit and Opportunity landings. And then um, now we have, uh, we had... Um, uh, curiosity and now perseverance and we actually have a, a a little helicopter flying around on mars which is totally trippy um and you know we've discovered a lot since then and i'm just kind of curious how you see the discoveries that have been made the scientific discoveries how that impacts the ideas you have for how a, how a habitat could be built and and sustained um has anything surprised you or is, there, uh, is it all going according to plan? Um, uh, I've been surprised by the discoveries on the upside and by the accomplishments of the human spaceflight program on the downside. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, now, first of all, when I wrote the case for Mars in the mid-90s, um, I embraced a position that had the support of a substantial faction within the scientific community. People like Chris McKay uh, had um, come to the conclusion that Mars was both was once warm and wet, that it was once a habitable place, so it's a great interest for astrobiology, and that it could potentially have the resources still to support life and civilization. Now, that was a respectable position within the scientific community at that time, but it had not yet been proven. The it, discoveries that were made, starting with Pathfinder in 1997 and Mars Global Surveyor in that year, and then especially with Spirit and Opportunity and the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter and Mars Odyssey, uh, confirmed that point of view. McKay and the rest of them were right. Uh, Mars once certainly was warm and wet. We have found conglomerate rocks. We found salt deposits on the shores of ancient seas and lakes. We, we uh, have found massive evidence for pa uh, large amounts of past water on Mars for uh, uh, the geologic time periods. Uh, more than long enough for life to originate, uh, three times as long as it took life to appear on Earth after there was liquid water here. But not only that, we've discovered extant amounts of water that exceeded any that this sort of pro-water faction had postulated. We've now discovered, using ground-penetrating radar, glacier formations on Mars containing uh, more water than in the American Great Lakes made of pure water ice as far south as 38 degrees north, which is the latitude of San Francisco uh, or Athens on Earth. Um, so, in other words, before we thought, oh, well, there's water at the poles, and actually that wasn't even established completely until 2007 with the Phoenix mission. Mm -hmm. led by Peter Smith. Um, but now we know it's not just at the pole, but down at mid-latitudes. There's massive amounts of water in pure form. It could be 
accessed by ice melting techniques like Rodriguez wells they use in Antarctica. And um, so um, the discoveries that have been made about Mars have um, confirmed and in fact improved upon the, the view we had of its suitability both as a, a home for life and as, and, and as a site for future settlement. Uh, what has lagged, however, has been uh, the human spaceflight program, mm-hmm. which, um, you know, um, well, it, it appeared to start moving. I mean, uh, the second George Bush started his own vision for space exploration um, and didn't really go anywhere except to start building the Orion and the SLS, which have now finally flown um, some 17 years later. Um, And I have to say it's actually worse than that because uh, the SLS is actually based on the booster that Baker and I designed for Mars Direct back in 1988, 89. Um, And so I actually don't agree with those that say SLS is a flawed design, it's a design that that was appropriate for its historic period, which was the 1990s. Um, it's a shuttle-derived heavy lift launch vehicle. Um, we when we designed it in like '89, uh, we didn't think it was the best possible launch vehicle. We thought it was the easiest launch vehicle to create because it was basically the shuttle launch stack without the orbiter. It's a mm-hmm. simplified version of the space shuttle. And they managed to take over 30 years to get it into the field. Unbelievable. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, 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 so uh, the NASA has been unable to um, come up with um, a consistent vision. The political class has been able to come up with a consistent vision and, and implement it, uh, at least within the context of the manned spaceflight program. The, the science program, the Planetary exploration missions and also the space telescopes have done very well. They've had a clear purpose. But the human spaceflight program has operated not as a purpose-driven program, but as a vendor-driven program. Right. um, But this is one of the reasons why um, this development of entrepreneurial space has been so welcome and, and actually caused by the failure of government space. There's nobody in the 1960s, well, not really, was looking for an entrepreneurial savior for NASA. NASA was doing great. Mm-hmm. Um, space program was doing great. Um, but, you know, in the 70s, it started to falter and then continued to wander in the 80s and 90s. And, um, and especially in the 90s, people started saying, we, we, we NASA's not going to open the space frontier. It's got to be done by private enterprise. Uh, There were a number of attempts in the 90s to get stuff like that going. They were all undercapitalized and failed. Finally, though, um, once again, the vision recruited to its banners, people with the resources to uh, address it seriously. So you had SpaceX, you had Blue Origin, you had the Virgin Galactic, you had some other uh, entities. And then the success of SpaceX in particular has made it possible for people who are not billionaires to get into the game, like Rocket Lab, working engineers finding investors because they concluded that it's possible for entrepreneurial space to succeed, in fact, brilliantly, to Mm -hmm. be able to do things 
that previously thought you needed the government's superpowers to do, and not only that, do it in one-third the time at one-tenth the cost, and even do things that they had basically deemed impossible, like reusable launch vehicles. Yeah. Um, and and that, by the way, has had repercussions outside of the space field. It's, it's caused fusion startups to get funded. Um, hmm. Not because Musk wasn't, Musk has no involvement in fusion, but his example convinced venture capitalists and other people with money that maybe the problem with fusion power is the same as the problem with usable launch vehicles, that it was it, it, not technical, but institutional. The wrong mm-hmm. people are doing it. Um, right. So now we have a, uh, uh, the race is on for uh, fusion power. And, and I think we're going to see uh, it uh, this decade, but by entrepreneurial fusion companies. Hmm. So your, your, uh, your bet wouldn't be with the, uh, the international um, effort that's, what is it, ITER? No, uh, ITER. Uh, yeah. I actually was involved in the fusion program in the mid-80s when ITER came along, and it we were doing pretty fast progress in the 80s based on international competition between the American, Soviet, European, and Japanese programs. As soon as they all decided to collaborate, all, all the competitive pressure went out and Eider took 30 years to decide where it was going to put itself. <laughs> uh, and no new major machines have been built anywhere um, except in China uh, since the 80s because the uh, previous four dominant programs all collapsed their efforts into Eider. Um, now, of course, uh, earlier this month, we had a significant advance from uh a government fusion program, which was the ignition by lasers of a pellet of, of fusion fuel at the National Ignition Facility at the Livermore Lab. This is an alternative approach, and this is an area where we are not engaged in international collaboration. Uh, so once again, um, you, the national programs, because they're competitive, can make a certain amount of progress. But I think that the real breakthroughs are going to come from the entrepreneurial fusion groups. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I haven't even read up on those much. Um, I'll have to look into that. Do you have any favorites that you think are making progress? Well, uh, there are several. Um, uh, the one I understand the best is the British one, Tokamak Energy. Because they're actually working on the very concept that I worked on at Los Alamos in 1985, known as the spherical tokamak. So I understand how that's supposed to work. Uh, and it's interesting that, okay, so tokamak is, is the mainstream magnetic fusion approach. The spherical tokamak was uh, an avant-garde approach to it. Come up, the inventor was an engineer, I believe, named Martin Peng from Oak Ridge. And we worked on it at Los Alamos. Uh, it was very promising, um, but it was too avant-garde for Eider, even though Eider was just in the early design phase at, at that time. Um, but it was already too much for them. Anyway, so the Brits, with their tokamak energy, are trying to make a spherical tokamak. Uh, the Commonwealth Fusion people in Boston are doing something close to that. Um but then there are some other approaches that people are doing, tri-alpha energy, helium energy, that are doing things that involve um, more novel physics than the tokamak. They're using mm. things where um, 
they get the magnetic field lines to curl around on themselves, kind of like smoke rings, instead of using external magnets. Um, mm -hmm. It's complicated, but in any case, there's a, a whole bunch of, of these startups, and some of them have, have gotten, uh, several of them have gotten more than half a billion dollars of investment each, which is serious money in the private world. Mm -hmm. Do you think we're uh, within decades of getting something feasible? I think we'll see an ignited magnetic fusion machine this decade. And once again, when I was at Los Alamos, we had a group lunch on one occasion. And the leader of the group got philosophical and he turned to everybody and he said, you know, when fusion power is finally developed, it won't be at a place like Los Alamos or Livermore. It'll be a couple of crackpots working in a garage. <laughs> and everybody laughed because, you know, these machines are big and they're beyond the means of back, you know, garage inventors. Um, but I think he was fundamentally right if not a couple of crackpots in a garage, a startup working in a warehouse. Yeah. Yeah. That's who's going to do it. Well, let's get back to Mars for a moment. Um, what do you think of the ideas on uh, human hab on habitats? Uh, I know that there's a ton of them out there. Uh, do you have any that are, you're excited by that you think might uh, be the most promising? Well, Okay, you know, the Mars Society had um, two contests over the past several years, one to design a 1,000-person Mars colony and the other to design a 1,000,000-person Mars city-state. And these included the technical side, the engineering, the economy, the architecture, the, the political and social systems, the aesthetics. Um, so there were all sorts of ideas proposed, some that I found very interesting um, involved putting using water for overhead shielding and actually putting the uh, colony's uh, fish farm, as you were, in the water tank above the colony. So you look up, there's actually light coming in from the sky through the water tank, but nevertheless, it's more than adequate shielding against cosmic rays, and it's serving the function of growing the, uh, a significant fraction of the uh, colony's food. Um, the, the, um, that's one of the, I mean, there's so many different ideas, uh, mm -hmm. that have been out there. Um, you know, a significant fraction of the Mars colony will be underground, kind of like a underground subway system, if you will. But a, another fraction of it will be above ground because you, you do want to use natural light to grow plants. Otherwise the power consumption is much too much. And, uh, and you know, I mean, how much of your time do you actually spend outdoors? 10%? Yeah. You spend two and a half hours a day outdoors? That would be a lot for most people. Okay? So if you, yeah. if, if the Mars colonists live 90% of their time indoors, that is underground, where they're totally shielded, and only 10% of their time in domed parks up on the surface, the radiation dose is low enough that it really doesn't matter from a health point of view. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a good way of looking at it. Yeah, there's there's been so many um, like Mars is a hellhole. Why would we want to go there? Kind of things, right? But that, now it, the, the interesting point there, okay? Because why would we want to go there? 
people will go there if it offers a way of life that is better than what they find on earth. If there is a better opportunity to exercise your talents, if there is more political freedom, if these are our draws. So for instance, uh, I disagree forcefully with the idea that a Mars colony could be a tyranny because no one would want to go there. Okay. That is, I'm actually working on a book right now uh, called New World, What Will We Create on Mars? Which Ooh, looks cool. at this question of w what kind of societies are we going to create on Mars? Well, you know, those two contests between them, there was almost 300 entries, and they had all sorts of ideas on, for instance, the political system, ranging from social democratic to libertarian and uh, many things that didn't don't fit in with that spectrum. Which are the Martians going to choose? I don't know. I, I think the Martians will make lots of choices. There'll be lots of different Mars city states. The ones that choose the best will be the ones that outgrow the others. Mm -hmm. Okay, and I believe that, yes, that will... Uh, there's some aspects of that. I believe that political liberty and intellectual liberty will be a very important part of that because it will be necessary both to draw people to Mars and for the Mars colony to come up with the innovations necessary for it to prosper. Okay, mm -hmm. um, But as for certain other features of it, that will be decided by natural selection. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um let me get philosophical just for a moment um, and connect this back to Asimov. Uh, there's a book he wrote called um, uh, The End of Eternity. Have you ever heard of it? Yeah, but I can't remember whether I read that one or not. Well, uh, I, I can can't... sketch it out really, really quickly. Basically, it's a time travel story. Okay. And it's uh, the Eternals are a group of, of people who are, um, they inhabit this this kind of realm that's parallel to normal uh, time and space. And they're, they're called the Eternals and their job is basically to like groom the timeline and, and like look for problems and smooth things out so that, you know, humanity doesn't get in trouble and, and ruin the, their future. Right. And what's, what's really fascinating to me about it is, that the final take he comes away with on it is this is a really bad idea <laughs> because humans need to get into trouble and do things that, you know, uh, are really a stretch and really uh, risky or else they'll, they, they become very, you know, monotone. You know, there's, there's just not anything, they they'll lose the spark to to develop and and uh, you know become become something new. They stop evolving, and to me, this is one of the the great reasons to to go to other planets is just because of the all the different forces impacting on on humans in a different world. Uh, how it will change humans for you know in, in multiple ways, and some of those ways will be bad, and some of those ways will be good, and the natural selection, as you say, will uh, you know pick and choose which ones will uh, will work best, and that's how we will you know evolve as a species into a new into right. new form. You got to be able to try things out. 
So yeah, I don't think Mars is going to be a utopia at all. I think it's going to be a lab. I think it's going to be a place where there's going to be lots of noble experiments, some of which will succeed, some of which will fail. But the ones that succeed will show the way forward for everyone. And it'll have a, it, it can only provide more opportunities for ways that life on Earth can develop. Um, right. Based on those ideas. Yeah. Sure. I hate the idea of this um, like binary uh, approach of like uh, planet A and planet B and there is no planet B kind of thing. Well, obviously, if we're going to Mars, we're not leaving Earth uh, behind or it's. No, it's we're creating be- new creative branches of human civilization that will make their contribution alongside those that remain on Earth. Just like the America, the New World contributed alongside of Europe and also Eastern civilizations, even uh, in advancing uh, human civilization overall. Yeah, yeah, man. I'm looking at this this list of topics, and we we could it would take us four or five hours to get through it. There's <laughs> uh, okay. I don't think we can. Uh, so uh, no, let, let me see if I could pick out any that I I really wanted to talk to you about. Uh, oh, one of the things that I want—I was—I learned from you actually. Uh, from a, I met you uh, one of the times I ran into you was at Contact, one of the, okay. a conference with uh, science fiction writers and down at so, NASA Ames. This okay. is like early two thousands, not too long after that, uh, you know, that fundraiser, and you gave a talk on panspermia, right. And I was so struck by that that it basically became the core of a uh, an idea I had for a rock opera, and I ended up writing it. It's called Planet and Sky, and it's kind of a, a mythical, mythological science fiction kind of thing where the the planet and the atmosphere uh, fall in love. Uh, but the panspermia part is how life came to the planet. It it came from outside of the uh, that star system and uh, populated the planet. So uh, have you uh, developed those ideas of panspermia further from from when you talked in the early 2000s? Well, somewhat. Uh, Look, uh, I think that uh, life can travel between solar systems. Um, I I actually wrote... uh, a peer-reviewed paper on this that got published in the International Journal of Astrobiology. Um, But it's basically this, is that, uh, okay, you know, back in the 80s, there were some people who observed that there was a rough periodicity of 26 million years to mass extinctions on Earth. Not exactly, Mm -hmm. but roughly. And they postulated that there could be a a star in a highly elliptical orbit around our star that every 26 million years passes through the Oort cloud, destabilizes a bunch of objects, and they come and they bombard the Earth and cause mass extinctions. So they went looking for this so-called nemesis star. They could not find it. Okay. Well, I did a rough calculation, and I looked at if you consider the sun's random motion, uh, there's the sun's orbiting the center of the galaxy, and so are all the other stars, but they also are not exactly orbiting the center. They, they, they have superimposed on that orbital motion. There's a random motion of around 10 kilometers a second every which way of all the stars. 
And if you consider the stars as a bunch of objects spaced out at the way they are moving at those velocities, how often do you get a close approach? Well, it's between 20 and 30 million years. So you don't need a nemesis star. You just mm-hmm. need random motions of stars passing through our or cloud, and presumably we're passing through theirs. So guess what? These close encounters occurring every 20 or 30 million years, uh, it, it's not a periodic phenomenon. It's a phenomenon with a characteristic frequency, okay? You know, like how often do you see a collie? Okay, you see a collie a certain number of times a year. It's not because the collies are orbiting your house. It's because there's a certain number of collies out there and there's a certain probability you're going to see one on any given day, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, the the Okay, so this is happening every so often. Uh, and uh, now when it happens, we get bombarded either by our own or cloud or by objects in the other stars or cloud. And then debris is scattered off the Earth precisely when the other solar system is nearby. Mm-hmm. So people do calculations of, gee, how long would it take for a piece of debris to travel four light years, which is the distance to Alpha Centauri? Well, that's a distance to Alpha Centauri now, but during a mass extinction event, the probably the star is less than a tenth of a light year away, mm-hmm. and possibly much closer than that. And the um, so the chance so it, it's like the analogy I use if you think of warships in the age of fighting sail, uh, which had guns that could fire a few hundred yards, but they had global range. How did they ever manage to hit each other if they're sailing all over the ocean and they only have cannons can only shoot a couple hundred yards? Well, they would only shoot their cannons when they were with a couple of hundred yards of another ship. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay, so the stars only let loose their bombardments when they are close by. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Uh, no, that makes sense. And, and the, um, the, 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 so this is happening and Look, there's no evidence that there was ever a time when the Earth was both habitable and lifeless. Okay? Mm -hmm. That is, as soon as there's liquid water on Earth, virtually, we find evidence of life on Earth. Mm -hmm. So that means one of two things. Either the processes that are involved in chemistry evolving to life are either very straightforward and occur with high probability, and so the Earth developed life as soon as it could, or life is floating around in the galaxy in the form of spores from panspermia, uh, or, you know, my version, if they're on rocks that have been knocked off of planets and are floating around. But in any case, and they land and take hold as soon as the planet can uh, support them. In other words, if you put some food on the table and leave it there, it will become colonized by bacteria extremely quickly, okay, Mm -hmm. Uh, because they're in the air. Well, so either you get spontaneous generation very easily or you get uh, 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 insemination very quickly. But either way... What that says to me is life is common in the universe. It has to be. In other words, either it can evolve quickly or it's there ready to pounce as soon as it finds a place. 
Mm-hmm. Um, we know from the Kepler telescope that one in five stars has an Earth-sized planet in its habitable zone. Mm-hmm. One in five. Not one in a million, one in five. Okay, yeah. which means there's, you know, like a hundred billion habitable planets in our galaxy alone. And these things are constantly moving around, having close encounters with each other that would cause life to be transferred from one to the next. You know, if these things happen every 20 million years and there's been life on Earth for 4 billion years, what's that? That's uh, 200 times this has happened since there's been life on Earth. So that life is all over the place in the galaxy from no other source than the Earth spreading it around. Yeah. Uh, but complex life could be quite rare, right? It could be, but look, the, there's a process, evolution, that tends to lead. Okay, it leads in all directions, all right? Mm-hmm. It, people make a whole fuss about, gee, uh, evolution doesn't only go towards intelligence. It goes to all these other directions, too. True. It goes in all directions, including intelligence. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if life's everywhere, I think intelligence is quite common, too, because life evolves in all directions. And one, intelligence is one useful adaptation. Yeah. So life's going to find it. So what's your answer to uh, Fermi's paradox? Uh, where where are they? Where are the um, the aliens? Oh, we're, we're here. Yeah. <laughs> the um, okay. Uh, once again, if we then come to the conclusion that life uh, is probably everywhere, okay, mm-hmm. then in other words, life either evolves spontaneously with ease or it gets transferred with ease. Well, the Earth is 4 billion years old, but the universe is 14 billion years old. And so what's the chance that we were the first? Mm-hmm. Okay, very small. Yeah. So therefore, um, we've met the aliens and they are us. Yeah, sounds pretty reasonable. But a lot of things had to, we had to dodge a lot of uh, possible disasters that could have wiped us out along the way. True. On the other hand, we probably missed a lot of good opportunities. Yeah, that's probably true too. So um, let's see, what haven't we uh, talked about? Um, oh, one, I wanted to talk about the case for space a little bit. I love the book. Um, and you talked about a lot of really interesting things like space mining and uh, lunar observatories and things like that. Uh, it's, what, are you, what are you really excited about coming up in the next 20, 30 years in space? Well, two things. First of all, with the mainstream space program, I'm actually extremely excited about the Webb telescope. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The uh, and other great observatories, uh, because I think we will 
figure out how to detect oxygen in the atmospheres of exoplanets. And, you know, there was no oxygen in the Earth's atmosphere until there was life. Oxygen's an artifact of life because oxygen is very reactive and the things it can react with, like hydrogen, carbon, and iron, vastly outnumber the oxygens. So to have free oxygen, somebody's got to be making it. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I'm not talking about, you know, trivial amounts of oxygen like exists in the atmosphere, so-called, of Europa. I'm talking about serious oxygen like is the Earth's atmosphere. Mm -hmm. uh, it can only exist uh, if there's life making it. And I think we'll find it. And we will discover that we are living in a, a life-filled universe. Um, the, uh, then the other thing I'm excited about is the impact of the entrepreneurial space on the main space program. Now, uh, I was a bit more optimistic about this until a few months ago. <laughs> um, but, uh, still the scenario is there. And let me tell you the optimistic scenario. Okay. The optimistic scenario is SpaceX gets Starship flying next year. And it's flying regularly to orbit by 2024, and we're going to have somebody elected in 2024, and they're going to look at this thing and they say, here's this cat, wants to send humans to Mars, he's got the ships, if we got together with him, could we get people to Mars by the end of my second term? And the advisor is going to say, yeah. And, well, is it going to cost a trillion dollars or something? No, we've already have the transportation system. There's a bunch of other stuff that's needed that he doesn't have. Uh, well, if we got together with him, could... Could we do it by the end of my second term? Yes. Is it going to cost a trillion dollars? No. Uh, it probably could be done within the existing NASA budget, more or less, because he needs a nuclear reactor to produce the power to make the return propellant. He needs Mars spacesuits and Mars rovers and stuff. But this is not a trillion dollar kind of thing. This is, you know, billions of dollars kind of thing. And <laughs> we can do it. So, well, then let's do it. Okay. Now, I thought that scenario was extremely probable earlier this year. Now, since then, Musk has gotten uh, diverted, uh, and, um, and I'm hoping this is just a phase, uh, but there was always the chance that Musk could skate off the edge of the ice because he is a risk taker. Mm -hmm. um, but if SpaceX doesn't make it, I believe at this point, the forces that have been set in motion will accomplish the same thing. Maybe it'll be Rocket Lab. Maybe it'll be Blue. Okay, these people are not moving as fast as SpaceX. They got a ways to go to catch up. But basically what Musk has done is proven the point that entrepreneurial space can do the job. So other people are going to get funded. And, and by the way, if this Starship is successful, there'll be Chinese knockoffs. I mean, the, 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 you know, this is going to happen one way or the other at this point. Um, and um, it, it may take a bit longer if SpaceX loses its way. But at this point, um, SpaceX has pointed out the way. And if SpaceX gets lost, others will find the way. Yeah, I hope you're right. That's a good way of thinking about it because I've been pretty morose about what's happening, but mostly about Musk just, you know, alienating so many people that his vision gets tainted in the process, you know, and, and people associate the idea of um, SpaceX moving off to other planets uh, as like, oh, that Musk thing, 
you know, and right. I, I'm really hoping that's that's that he drops this Twitter craziness as soon as possible. Right. Uh, one, one other guy I wanted I wanted to ask you about is uh, that we both know from the old days is Kim Stanley Robinson, uh, and I'm kind of curious if you're still in touch with him. Have you read any of his recent books? And what no, do you no, think? No, I, his- I, I I haven't. Um, I have. Um, while I like some of his writing, I think he's a very capable writer. I. I disagree fundamentally with Kim Stanley Robinson uh, because Kim Stanley Robinson is a believer in the limits to growth and I am not. (laughs) Uh, And I think he does not realize uh, not only how wrong the limits to growth viewpoint is, but how dangerous it is because it sets everyone against each other. Okay. And it, it is surprising to me that so many people of the left, and, and Stan considers himself to be a person of the left. I don't think he would disagree with that characterization at all. Uh, have embraced an idea that in the old days, the left recognized as their enemy. That is, if you read you know, Marx or Engels or Henry George or other people, they say this Malthusian idea is just an alibi for poverty. And oppression is saying, well, sorry, uh, everyone can't have a decent life. There's not enough to go around. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it also uh, leads to, to fascism. I mean, you know, Hitler said this idea of uh, perpetual plenty through science, he said it's a Jewish plot to uh, dissuade the people from believing in the necessity for war. Well, it's not a Jewish plot, but it does dissuade people from believing in the necessity for war. Right. Okay. And that's why it should be promoted. Um, the, and, and, and so I, I just think that um, Stan has accepted certain ideas, which for various reasons, uh, which once upon a time were understood to be ultra right wing ideas. They were embraced by the left in the 70s, uh, direct opposition to, you know, you know what it's like? It's amazing to me. You know, you like you have the Republicans who used to be against the Kremlin. Now they're for it. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the Democrats at one time were for nuclear power and then they went against it. I mean, you have political factions adopt ideas that are the exact opposite of what they once had. And it's, it's strange how it happens, but it happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the thing that that I have a hard time with Stan's latest work ever since I think the the book Aurora, which was his his about a um, you know a, a um, an arc ship going to the near to you know to try to reach Alpha Centauri. I haven't read it yet, but I intend to. And it, it, things go badly, and he he kind of decided around then that uh interstellar space travel is never going to happen and that it, it he kind of pivoted to believing in like making things work here on earth but it to me it's it seems like you got to keep doing everything you know you, where we can multitask and mm-hmm. focus on the problems that we have on earth as well as 
continue to reach out and you know expand our presence in the at least in the solar system and you know i that's another question i was going to ask you do you think there's any possibility of eventually moving to other stars and yes. like i think my biggest concern about it is something that i hadn't really been aware of until fairly recently which is like the dangers of hitting objects at very high speed you know even very tiny objects and how that could how much shielding you need you're going to need some shielding but look there's two ways i could answer this question fundamentally first of all as an engineer um at which point i can show you that there are things that i i know could be engineered by people with sufficient resources and a little bit more technological skills than we have now, but within currently understood physics, for sure, that could get us to, you know, 10% the speed of light, which will get you to Alpha Centauri in 40 years. So, you know, fusion propulsion, this sort of stuff. Okay. But also then going beyond my remit as an engineer, uh, I have to say, I believe, I have faith that there's more science out there to be discovered, that we haven't read the full book of nature yet, uh, that there are more forces of nature ready to be discovered and exploited um, than those we know about today. Um, and the reason why I believe that is because there's a lot of things within the current physics canon that absolutely do not make sense. And uh, you just have to look the other way and say, well, that's how it is. Uh, I mean, for example, uh, our current physics says that matter, energy cannot be created or destroyed. Yet here it is all around us. Mm -hmm. So obviously we've missed something here. Um, you know, uh, and uh, so that, and you know, when people discovered new forces of nature, things that previously, you know, we discovered electricity and instantaneous communication across long distances became possible. We discovered nuclear forces and all sorts of other things became possible. We discovered quantum mechanics and other things became possible. Mm -hmm. uh, if, you, if we discover new physics, all sorts of things are going to become possible that are currently thought to be impossible. Right, And I think the place we're going to discover the new physics is in space because there's no better lab than the universe. I like that. Well, I think we probably should wrap up. Okay. In well over an hour. Uh, so I'm um, really happy to, that you came on. So glad uh, to have you here. Okay, so uh, send me a link when it comes out. And let's. Oh, and, and uh, also, I wanted to ask you. Uh, you mentioned a book, and I want to read that book. Uh, well, that, that you're book's not on. done yet. Yeah, the New World book, but uh, hopefully, it will come out around the end of this year. Yeah, oh, this year meaning twenty twenty two. Twenty twenty three. Okay. So a year from now, I should be looking for it. I'm living in the future. Okay. Um, all, right. <laughs> all right. But yeah, but sure. it'll come out within about a year from now. Any other projects or anything you wanted to talk about before we close? I'm also working on a book about nuclear power, and it might come out even sooner than that. Cool. All right. Um, well, I hope your, um, your current 
projects uh, work out well, uh, that weather balloon and whatever else. Uh, and uh, it's just so happy to have you. And right. uh, uh, we'll have to. Great, Joel. And come to our next Mars Society conference. I'm not sure where it'll be. Chances are either the LA area or back at Arizona State University near Phoenix. Yeah, I could I could probably make it to one of those for sure. I, I that was so exciting the one I went to. So yeah. I want to. Go, I've been wanting to do another one forever. There's always things in the way, but got to get okay. them out of the way. All right. Thanks so much. Right. Ooh, that was a blast. I really can't thank Robert enough for offering his unique insights on the space industry. Mars, life in the galaxy, and so much more. Following up on our discussion on panspermia, I can't resist the urge to crowd Robert's glory here by quoting from something I wrote, but since it was partly inspired by his lecture on the topic, it seems to justify it. The third episode of Planet and Sky, The Deeper Story, itself a variation on the rock opera Planet and Sky, a cosmic love story, tells the panspermia story from the viewpoint of the travelers themselves and lends the song with which I'll close this episode its name. Here is a little bit of context the narrator provides, which should sound a little more familiar after Dr. Zubrin's explanation. Quote, The three travelers were embedded in a tiny astronomical object floating far out in space. It had once been a part of a larger world, rich with life. They were representatives of this life in microbial form and encased in an icy rock that had been shot off into the outer regions of its original star system. It had drifted further and further away from its native sun until it was barely held by a tenuous thread of gravitational force. Another star had intersected the vicinity of the distant sun in its travels through the depths of space. As it grew closer, its own gravitational well overcame the weak force of the original one. The planetoid was gradually pulled more strongly by the new star and began its long fall toward its new master. End quote. And with that, I will bid you all happy joys of the season and hope the new year treats you well and then many more into the dazzling future. We all have to bear witness to the beginnings of humanity's leap from the cradle. See you on the other face of Janus with the next episode of Selden Crisis. Speed fast on our way, the light getting brighter, the cold fades.